Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAD. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detail today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. When starting an architecture firm, there's a lot to consider for the framework of your business. How big do you want the practice to be? What kind of projects will you take on? What is your experience level with contracts? These factors will inform the foundation of your firm, the parts that no one sees, but are critically important for the long-term health of your business. While starting a business is exciting and fun, there's one area that's not so fun and quite stressful to consider, legal risk. I'm Jeffrey Lee, and this is Emerging, a Gable Media Podcast. It's going to be really hard, right? It's it's going to be really hard, and I've seen I've seen a lot of people start out, and we we ask you the very first question we ask you are what are you projecting your billings for year one? Almost always, people come back under well under that number. The other thing in hunting for a lawyer, we called a bunch of agencies, and they're all like, "Yeah, great, just give us a ten thousand dollar retainer, and when we hit that fee, we'll let you know to refill the retainer." And it's like. We can, we do not have that money. This is the podcast where you'll hear what it's really like to start a new architecture firm. A couple episodes back, we discussed some legal aspects of the business, legal structure and partnership agreements, as well as functional aspects like maintaining a healthy partnership. We shared our process of formally registering the business. And if you recall from the previous episode, we selected our business name, Level Studio, just in time to meet our internal deadline to register. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the episodes to hear the full unfiltered story behind our journey to start an architecture firm. In this episode, we'll discuss additional legal and risk management considerations. But first, we have to pick up on the story where we registered the business. With the official name of Level Studio Architecture, LLC, we filed our registration forms. 
We were beaming with excitement. We were actually making strides to opening a business. Now that the task was taken care of, Chris was off to Romania for vacation. However, our initial moment of joy and triumph soon fizzled when we discovered that we had made a mistake. Lexi and I were faced with the question, should we burden Chris, who was supposed to be unwinding, with this pressing issue? Burnout is a big problem in our industry, and we didn't want to impede on his downtime. Ultimately, we decided that this was important enough because delay could have far-reaching consequences. First, we reached out via text. We were supposed to apply as a PLC, different forms. PLLC? Uh, can we transfer? Been trying to call DOS about it, but never got through. Sent an email. Thanks, no word back. Guess we should have got a lawyer. <laughs> I don't think we can transfer, and then we're worried the name may be taken. Yeah, that's the only issue. Otherwise, we just dissolve and pay another 60 bucks for the new PLLC. The name might be taken. LOL, still cheaper than a lawyer, right? Then we jumped on a quick Zoom call to discuss in more detail. Well, wait, do we want to start with the good news or the bad news? It seems like you guys have both. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> all right, well, let's start with the bad news. Let's just get out of the way. We all know what's going on here. We wanted to save some money. We do it ourselves. Who needs a lawyer? And we talked about, you know, PLC, what the difference is in New York. We were all aware of it. And then for some reason, when we decided to actually start paying money, we didn't didn't actually look for the PLC. We just went straight for the LLC. So long story short, we lost 60 bucks. We just got to reestablish as a PLC. The little tricky... Yeah, it was 60 bucks. We didn't do any of the uh, publishing so, stuff. Wait, yet, so did, good. You, did you finally get someone on the phone? The last time I talked to you, no. I found this out and we're trying to reach somebody. Yeah, so the only question did, is, is because the name is, it's technically taken now. So if we, do we need to dissolve first with the state before we can do a PLC if we want the same name or are there any provisions in place that allow a transition like that? Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, can we, can we back up again? Yeah. I guess going into this, like when we signed up for LLC, like I knew there was PLLC and I thought if we yeah. were a professional service, like automatically started as an LLC, then, then it's just like you put a letter on there. I didn't realize it was something separate that you had to sign up for. Yeah, and this is yeah, again state separate. by state. Yeah, and it's how, a little how different did you guys state find by state. Out? I was reading through a number of the articles I had on LSD, and I just happened to run to one written by a New Yorker. And it was like the second sentence Our Architects cannot uh, practice as an LLC in New York City. And I was oh, wait, we f***ed up. Okay. Uh, and, and we looked on the form site, and yeah, there it was. It was a different form for PLLC. God. So stupid. Yeah. <laughs> we live and we learn. We live and we learn. Yep. That's why lawyers make the big bucks. A slightly longer form uh, than the one we did for the LLC because there's the whole vision of 
uh, you having to verify your licensure in New York City to the board. And so there's that added element to it. And the form is also 60 bucks, same cost. But yeah. Okay. Well, and then I try, I spent like an hour or two trying to look up if like if we could just switch it over and mm. everything I found was like, no, you can't just switch it over. Yeah. So, so I, you found other people who did the same thing or what? I mean, just reading blogs and stuff, it was like, you need to register as one or you need to register as the other. Not like, oh, you can just switch it. Because <laughs> okay. I thought for sure we can't be the first people that have ever done this. And then yeah. it's like, I couldn't find anybody, any example of people that had done it. <laughs> okay. And yeah, and then I, I've been trying to call, I called, I don't know, four or five times. So I always uh, never get through. And I tried emailing. I checked this morning, but still didn't have an email back from them. So you're calling them to ask, like, hey, can we just transfer somehow? Well, just you know, asking the question, hey, like, you know, we're from, I was just say we're out of state. I didn't realize we had, uh, I had to register as a PLLC as an architect. So what's the process here? Do I need to dissolve? Do I want to hold a name? Or is, are there any provisions? Or can I just kind of reapply as a PLC and dissolve right. at the same time without any worry of? being right. pulled up because of the name okay wow okay <laughs> so that's that, that's the bad news so based on what you guys know it seems like it seems like worst case scenario might be two sixty dollar fees yeah i mean yeah we already paid 160 and then i don't know if it costs anything to dissolve uh, the bigger thing is that we don't know if we'll be able to get our name or not because we already have our own name yeah <sighs> <laughs> yeah i mean i don't think we sit on for too much longer we keep trying to reach out otherwise i say we just apply the plc try the name and if we get rejected on the name then we'll know if we'll have to dissolve i mean i sent a link to how to dissolve a llc that's pretty straightforward we don't have any revenue so we don't have to worry about taxes or anything I mean, honestly, I think the next step is if we can't get an answer and we apply as a PLLC and they reject us because of the name, then maybe we do need to talk to a lawyer. I don't know. God. It hurt because we knew it was supposed to be a PLLC and then somehow just in the mix of like trying to check boxes and we missed that. And unfortunately, PLLCs are so much more complicated and they kick in because architecture is a kind of regulated business where you need a, a professional license to kind of offer services. So that's what that P in PLLC is, professional. And that needs to go through the state education board. Everything was backed up because of COVID at that time. So by the time we were talking to a lawyer, you know, she she told us it's going to take seven months to get this registered. You know, once I get all your paperwork and that we had to fill out. The other thing in hunting for a lawyer, we called a bunch of agencies that were like showing up on legal zoom or somewhere else that were recommended. And they're all like, yeah, great. Just give us a $10,000 retainer. And when we hit that fee, we'll let you know to refill the retainer. And it's like, we can, we do not have that money. So we had to call around. The good thing is a lot of lawyers offer kind of free initial consultations to kind of explain what the process will be. So that helped us get a better understanding. And then we found a lawyer who was within our budget and, and could get it all done. With that officially behind us, we moved on to other considerations in the legal arena, like 
contracts, risk management, and insurance, which we admittedly don't have that much direct experience and comfort with at the moment. We take the figure it out as you go approach, which for good or bad, but we usually reference like, you know, if we've talked to other small businesses and they can give us a sample of something they've done or, you know, my uncle is a practitioner and he sort of gave me some advice on how to, when we were putting that RFP together that I tried to work in and researching. So whenever we've done those kind of things, you know, there are AIA contracts that we've obviously, we've looked at and when that time comes, we'll probably be referencing those. So, you know, that's sort of the approach we've taken, which is like build it out as you need it because we don't have a ton of time. (laughs) For additional insight, we spoke with Zach Waters, the founder and CEO of Black Swan Risk Management, a risk management firm for architects and engineers. If you were to go sit down with a financial planner and talk about retirement, the first question they would ask you would be, what is your tolerance for risk, right? You're planning for your retirement. Do do you like Bitcoin or do you like stocks, you know, and bonds or do you like nothing? I want to put it in CDs, you know, or I don't trust banks, right? Whatever, whatever your deal is. So to think about that in terms of of insurance and starting a business is, do we want a high deductible plan? Do we want a low deductible plan? What is the biggest threat that we would identify as shutting us down? We call this the kill the company exercise. So if we have to sit around one day and think about ways that, hey, it's three years later and this company didn't work. Why didn't it work? You know, there might be some, we didn't get enough clients marketing, things like that. But is it, you know, we signed a bad contract. We had, we, we didn't get enough profit margin on all of our stuff, whatever that is. What is our biggest threat to this business? And then do we have the ability to tolerate that risk? Do we want to transfer it via insurance? Do we want to pay for a risk management team? Or do we, are we just like, you know, I don't see it. It's not really, it's not a huge risk. We're willing to take it on, meaning I can go, you know, get a, a relatively inexpensive policy online and call it good for now. A lot of people starting their business do that. And rightfully so, because they look at the risk and they're like, man, there's just not a ton right now, right? If you don't have any projects, we don't have any risk yet. <laughs> we don't have any risk yet. So so that's not, it's not a question that you that has like a firm answer to it, but it's just kind of a, a style of thinking or a, a framework, if you will. You know, generally asking yourself as you're taking on clients, what is our tolerance for risk? Zach shared his insights on contracts, insurance, and risks to consider when engaging with a client. To start, he explained the basics of liability insurance as it relates to architects and engineers. Professional liability for architects and engineers is very different than most other insurances, right? So your auto insurance, your home insurance, things like that, they're on what's called an occurrence form. It basically just means that you pay your premium, you have a a set period of time, call it January 1st to December 31st, 2023. If I go drive my car right now and I get into an accident, as long as I paid my premium in that time period, I have coverage, right? And we're going to figure out, you know, whose fault it is, things like that. Professional liability, it's on what we would call a claims made basis. So we have one extra piece of criteria. We need to have started the policy from whenever we signed the contract, took on the project, took on the liability, and we need to keep it in place the entire time through when the claim might come. And that claim probably would come a year, two years, three years down the road, right? So that's Typical of a design claim is about two years, right? We go through design phase. The 
building gets built. And then two years later, we're like, oh, wow, water intrusion, you know, oh, wow, you know, something like that. Sometimes you're in the middle of of design phase or in the middle of CA and you're like, hey, we forgot a window, right? Uh Uh-oh, okay. But that's not, those don't tend to be the the big ones. The big ones for residential tend to be water, something water-related leaks like that. The bigger ones for commercial Sometimes uh, it's it's schedules and and just delays, right? A museum needs to open on September first for you know whatever event, and we didn't hit it. Everybody's going to be in a little bit of trouble there. So that's just kind of overview basics, professional liability. That's going to be the big policy for an architecture firm, and that kind of gets to one of the questions later, which is, you know, if we were going to run lean, what would we do? I would say invest all of your money into a good professional liability policy because. There's other policies out there and depending on the client, they might in their contract have insurance requirements of professional liability at these limits, general liability, probably at 1 million, 2 million, you know, maybe auto, maybe workers comp, whatever those are. Those are lower liability or lower exposure areas for an architect. And so workers comp aside, and we'd have to figure that out depending on how the the business is structured, whether you actually have employees, but the other ones I'd say, take all your money, I'd put it into a good professional liability policy because that, that also the contracts question, we can loop back in some of the services. You can pay an insurance company who will review contracts for you. Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul, uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. You may have also heard of general liability insurance. General liability is the yin to the yang of professional liability, the dovetail policy. General liability would deal with a trip and fall if you had an office. It would deal with like libel and slander if you said something negative about a competitor or something like that. It could potentially deal with an issue if there was a safety issue on a site visit, something along those lines. But in my years doing this, I can count on one hand the number of general liability claims I've seen brought against an architect. So 
I just don't see it as a big exposure. So it's generally relatively cheap compared to professional liability. And especially if you're all working remotely and you don't have a physical office that you have employees going into, it's generally something I would wait on until you're required by contract to bring it on. For us, we would like to do more cultural and larger scale projects like museums. So if a client requires larger insurance coverage, then a small firm like us would typically carry. Zach noted that you can request that the insurance premium be covered within your project fee. Our first protocol is to push back on that and say, hey, that's that's too much. We're a small firm. It's an egregious amount of insurance. But if they say, no, we need it, they say, great, I'm going to bake it into my fee and you need to pay for it, right? You're, you're going to need to cop me. And they're going to say, go get a quote for it. Okay. It's, you know, $3,000 per million, something like that. And then you bake that into your fee and not just that year, because it's going to be, you're going to need to keep it for right. Subsequent years, what, whatever it is uh, in New York, it's going to be 10 years, probably right. That California, New York, uh, a lot of the, the bigger States statute or oppose is 10 years. And that's statute or opposes the ability of, of the amount of time that they have to find a claim. A statute of limitations is the time that they have to bring a claim against you once it's found, right? So theory, there's like 12 years in there for, I mean, really, really getting into it. It doesn't happen very often except for on condo projects. Condo projects are the ones that you're likely to see that claim come in in year eight, year nine, year 10. When it comes to insurance coverage over the full scope of a project, Zach suggests a 40 to 60% split between the design team and construction team. I like to see 40, 60, 40 being the architect, 60, or I'm sorry, 40 being the design team, 60 being the build team. So for, again, we'll, let's say a million just to keep the math really even, right? That means that, that, means that we really only need you know, $400,000 of insurance for the design team, which is not a whole lot, right? If we've got an architecture firm, we're probably going to have a million. If we bring in a structural, it's a whole nother argument or a topic that we could get into bringing on subconsultants and the liability there. But everybody, we're going to want to make sure they have it. Our general contractor needs to have their general liability. That should be a million. If they hire subs, they should have a million. So we should be more than covered. But if we extrapolate that, let's say it's a $100 million project, right? All of a sudden, the numbers start getting really big, and we need to make sure that everybody has these large limits. We get into like project-specific stuff, but yeah, that's that's the general ratio. Because if we look at the the fees and when we look at the profit margins, the design team is is hoping to get 10, 15% profit margin. I'm hoping, you know, hoping, right? The builder, the builder is probably doing a lot better than that, probably depending on you know whether they've done this before. So it stands to reason that we shouldn't have to have as much insurance as they do. Now, for many startup firms, you're likely running on a lean budget and may consider foregoing insurance for some time. There's a lot to consider with that decision. If we don't have insurance, is it easy to come after an individual, right? Let's just say that the three of you are operating, you get your first job, it's a single family residential, you're gonna help somebody build their dream home. Something goes wrong, you know, we, we have an issue. There's a claim against us. We don't have insurance. Insurance is readily available proceeds. It's a million dollar policy that's there for your errors and omissions. This is exactly what it's meant for. The, the client comes to you and says, hey, we're unhappy with this, this, and this. You go to your insurance company, You know, they cut a check. That's kind of, it's, it's a nice, clean, easy way of, to, of handling the problem. If you don't have insurance, it's not 
easy or clean. It doesn't mean that it won't happen. It doesn't mean that they can't come after you and, and try to do something personally because whoever the license principle is, right, there is personal liability that comes along with being a licensed architect, unfortunately. And we'll, we'll get to that one too. We have a no personal liability clause in our contract. But the next scenario would be, okay, we don't have insurance. We've had this issue. What's the likelihood that somebody's going to come and sue you personally, try to take your assets, take your house? It's hard. That's, that's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to say it's not impossible because it, it is depending on you know the degree of which you know, we've made an error, but it's hard. It's hard to sue somebody. It's hard to it's hard to go after their personal assets, especially in a, in a setting of, of architecture where you know you, you probably weren't making a phenomenally large fee on this, right? This is something where so that that kind of will get us into the, you know we'll have a couple contract questions here later, but one of our tools that we use, one of our strategies in our contract, whether it's our agreement with a residential client or whether it's in you know a museum contract, is we try to limit our liability in a limitation of liability clause, right? And we try to put that at a number. Your insurance company, a good insurance company will give you a credit, up to 10 to 15% credit on your policy if you're getting limitations of liability because you're capping the number that somebody could come after you for. And that's really important because you're getting a fee. Let's just make it up and say it's $100,000 to keep math even, right? You're put. You're getting $100,000. You're going to go do a whole bunch of work. If you don't limit your liability, then by definition, your liability is unlimited, which is not good, right? It's a large. It's a very, very large number. Now, typically, we cap it at insurance, right? If you have a million dollar policy, great. Your liability is a million bucks, you know. But having the having those types of things, which especially for residential projects are fairly easy to get in. You know, you're you're dealing with very nice people, but you're dealing with what we would call unsophisticated clients, meaning they're not used to this. They're not they're not a, a developer. You can protect your personal assets through your contract with a simple clause referred to as a waiver of personal liability. Our goal would be to have in your contract either your standard from agreement that's drafted or to get into your commercial projects, waiver of personal liability. And sometimes we make that a mutual waiver. It basically means we're, we're not gonna go after each other for personal stuff. We all have insurance here, this is what this is for. Don't come after me for personal liability. If you're transitioning from working without insurance to obtaining it when your firm expands, Zach advises transitioning to full prior acts coverage. So I'll always point this back to the risk tolerance. It's whatever you feel comfortable with because there is there is risk in it, right? What, what we can say is that there's less risk in it. Absolutely, right? How much less risk? I mean, so many factors there. It depends on the, the client and their reputation, whether they're litigious, you know, whether, whether we're talking about a $300 million project or a $3 million project, right? All of those are going to factor into there. But one of your questions was, in, if I'm living in this gray area, how does it affect me later when I go get insurance, right? And the answer to that is eventually when you do pull the, the trigger on insurance, you're going to want to push for full prior acts coverage. So we talked about that prior acts date, right? Let's just say it was today. If we had been doing projects for two years up until now, we have a retroactive date of October 6th, 2023. Our goal, and, and an insurance company will typically give this to you after about two years, our goal would be to get full prior acts coverage, which means now we get everything going back to the date we started the firm. 
right? Now we, we have that retroactive date, which is important, but we have full prior acts as well. And that gives us coverage for those two years. It's typically a two, one to two year waiting period to get it because what they don't want you to do is know that there's a claim coming right? Potentially, you know, it's the same reason you could, you can't buy health insurance after you get sick, right? It's just, we've waited too long. So one final unique circumstance that we discussed was the transition from one insurance company to another. When we start a policy on the policy, it's called a retroactive date and a retroactive date is the date that we started. So if we put a policy in place today, your retroactive date would be October 6, 2023. And that date becomes a very important date through the whole life of the policy, right? If we go two years with a, what I'll call like a tier two or tier three insurance company, okay? On a budget, you know, we've got insurance that's not, that's not all the bells and whistles. And hey, we're blowing up. We've, we've got all the projects that we can handle. It's ready for us to hire people. And we're going to bump up the level of our insurance company to a tier one. When we put that application into the new insurance company, they're going to look at that retroactive date. And they're going to say, if we're offering terms, here's, a, here's the premium, here's our offer. We are covering everything going back to that date as long as you don't know about it. So it's a really important thing when you change insurance companies that you need to put your insurance company on notice if anybody has come to you and said that there might be an issue. We call that a, a pre-claim or a circumstance, right? Client's not happy about something, something along those lines. But the long and the short of it is that that date is a very important date for the rest of that insurance policy. We will always have coverage going back to that date. And every time you ever change insurance companies, the insurance company is agreeing to go back to that date. Whatever insurance company that you have at the moment that the claim comes in is going to be the one handling it. So let's just say that we had ABC Insurance Company and we had a tiny claim come in for $5,000, right? We had something whatever it was, and then we change insurance companies to XYZ company, that claim will always stick with ABC company. And it might take a year, two or three to get settled. It'll be open with that insurance company and they will always be on the hook for it. XYZ company will be aware of that. That's part of your loss history. Uh, but they are not, they're not choosing to take on that claim. You've already reported it. It's, it will always be with ABC company. Zach also generously shared his recommendations and thoughts for anyone starting or considering starting a new architecture firm. If I'm getting ready to decide what type of entity I want to be, I'm going to go find an attorney in my state or the state that I'm practicing who specializes in that because there are very different rules depending on all the different states as to what entity you can be. New York in particular, I have a client who lives in New Jersey, practices in New York, and there's a lot of, you can be a professional corporation, but you can't be in New York and there's all kinds of issues there. I'm not an attorney. I would go go find somebody there that knows what they're talking about. In California, you can't be an LLC as an architecture firm, which uh, you can in other states. So, so that's one thing. I would get a bulletproof contractor. I would spend the money on an agreement because that is going to protect you. AIA is a great place to start, right? We talked about our AIA documents that B101 is the owner architect agreement. If you're an AIA member, you, you can get that. Sometimes paying an attorney a couple hundred bucks to amend that a little bit and draft it in your favor is well worth the money. It's a great place to start. If we're going super high level, building a little risk management team. I do this with a number of different attorneys around the country where You've got an attorney picked out that you work with. You've got a risk manager, broker, whoever that is, and the insurance company knows about both of them and works with them. That's a nice little triangle of, of outsourcing your risk management so that you don't have to worry about 
contract review. You don't have to worry about that type of stuff. You can just send that off. It does come with a fee. You know, there's there's budgets for paying for for that type of stuff, but I think it's a it's a great long-term place to to strive to be. It's going to be really hard, right? It's it's going to be really hard and I've seen I've seen a lot of people start out and we we ask you the very first question we ask you are what are you projecting your billings for year 1? Right? And a $100,000 is a as a common number, 200, 300. Almost always people come back under well under that number, right? We're we're thinking in our head that we're going to have all these clients, all this work's going to come in and it just doesn't. So from an insurance standpoint, I want to keep that number incredibly low year one. It's like estimating the mileage you're going to drive. It's like, let's let's guess as low as we think is possible because if we're if we're under, right? If we do better than we thought we would, we'll make up for it in years, next years, and that's okay because it means that we have work coming in. But if we overestimate, we don't get any money back, and you know we're here, we are in year two, we're paying for insurance, and we didn't get the we didn't hit the numbers that we thought. So be really really conservative know why you're doing this and know it's just it's going to take a long time that's and that's okay it's it's absolutely worth it all of my clients that start their firm couldn't imagine going back and working for somebody else so as we continue to develop this area of our business the brief setback that we had was a reminder that this business is not in our core training and that's okay it is important to acknowledge that and engage and lean on experts as much as you can the benefit of the experience is that we have some takeaways to share with you on your journey. The lawyer, I think, was probably the most expensive thing year one that we did, but it was a critical thing. And you always have to, again, weigh your time when you're starting a business. We probably wasted a month of three people's time doing that research. If you put an hourly rate on that, we burned the lawyer's fee right there or, or went way over the lawyer's fee. So it's better to hire if, if you if you can. Well, like, you know, do your due diligence ahead of time also, though, because by the time you get to hiring a lawyer, like especially if you're hiring maybe somebody that's in within your budget, that's a little bit lower, like they're just trying to finish their job and their tasks out. So you also need to come to the table. You know, it's I would liken it to like, when you go to a doctor and you're asking them for advice, but you also know your body and what you want. And maybe that's a weird analogy, but like you need to come to the table with questions that are relevant for you so that you leave that process, especially after we paid for the lawyer, like so that we know that we asked what we needed to ask. So we were covered in the aspects that were important to us. But, you know, you need to do a lot of research ahead of time to be able to know what even questions to ask, I think, or the appropriate questions so that it, you know, you get your money's worth in a way, if you're going to go that route. Before we wrap up, I wanted to give a special thank you to Zach Waters of Black Swan Risk Management. If you found his insights helpful and you want to speak with him in greater detail about your specific situation, I encourage you to visit blackswan-riskmanagement.com for more information. Now, the whole point of a business is to make money. Over the next two episodes, we'll shift to the financial aspects of starting a business, exploring our approach, discussing the building blocks for a financially healthy company, and figuring out how to find work as a new firm. And we'll dig into that next time on Emerging. You guys have an ecosystem in your business, whether whether you have revenue or not, right? There are growth issues and there are profit issues. And the paradox is that 
your growth systems need profit in order to function and your profit systems need growth systems in order to function. Thanks for listening. Emerging is a Gable Media podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend and rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really helps. And if you're looking for similar content, you can find even more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And before we go, if you want to jump ahead and find out more about us and our practice, you can visit us at lvl.studio. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. (laughs) So for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses.